Hi, this is Mary Kay's Positivity Podcast. I'm a yoga and meditation teacher and life coach. I'm also author of several self-help books. Mary Kay's Positivity Podcast is about strategies to think positively every day. We will cover relationships, positive energy, the power of attraction, and how to mindfully experience each day so that you can become your best self. Hi, thanks for joining us today. I want to introduce my guest, Virginia Hume, who graduated from Vanderbilt with me, and then we later moved to Boston together, so I've known her for many years. Virginia spent years in politics and public affairs communications for some large bipartisan firms, and then she went out on her own. She eventually left and focused exclusively on writing and editing. She was a speechwriter for, among others, the former publisher of the Washington Post, a college essay consultant, and also wrote the occasional article for political magazines. They say truth is stranger than fiction, and at some point, she decided politics had gotten a little too strange, and she turned to fiction. Her debut novel, Haven Point, published in June, was an instant national bestseller. The novel, which is set mostly in a fictional summer community on the main coast, is a family saga. The story is told through two narratives, grandmother and granddaughter, and it grapples with a range of challenges women face, cheating, gossip, scandals, alcoholism, class and society, tragedy, and so much more. These summer colonies are very matriarchal, and it is interesting to read about a little society that is run almost exclusively by women. Haven Point is a powerful story. I loved it, and a lot of what it talked about was female friendships. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. And then she's also currently working on her second novel, which will be set in the same fictional summer community, but in 1895. And she's told me that that novel will grapple with feminism, or perhaps better said, issues of women's empowerment, which sometimes relates to politics and policy, but just as often is more personal. So today I thought it'd be helpful to talk about female friendships, and also the issue of feminism. So thank you so much, Virginia, for joining us today. Thank you, Mary Kay. I'm so thrilled. I love the podcast. This is a lot of fun for me. Oh, good. Well, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how you got involved in writing, because often I talk to students and say, whenever you have a problem and something is upsetting or you're ruminating over it to pick up the pen and either write a song or write in your journal or write a short story. And it really helps release all that anxiety. Tell me a little bit about how you came to writing and the story behind it. That's such a good question because I feel like sometimes, and I don't know if you've had this experience talking to young people, but working especially in college essay consulting, I also had occasion to talk to a lot of young people. And they often talked about how they wrote a lot when they were younger, also reading similarly, and how they've sort of stopped high school. Sometimes their English classes put a damper on their writing and reading spirit. Mm -hmm. And I always tell them, if you were once a writer, always a writer, once a reader, always a reader. Those, um, habits can be interrupted in a way by high school and by college. I always encourage them to fold that back into their identity. When I was little, I wrote a lot of extremely bad poetry. <laughs> and when my mother would make me write a thank you note to someone, I would add like a little bonus poem at the end. <laughs> Some of them have been preserved, fortunately or unfortunately. And so a friend of my mom's recently returned one to me that has this poem called The Battle. B-E-T-T-L-E. -T -T -E. I assume I meant beetle because I talk about how the betel, the betel, it flies all around, but you better look quick because it flew out of town. Anyway, there's a bit of flavor of my a talent, which was blossoming even at a young age. And I did journaling when I was in an argument with a friend or frustrated or had had my feelings hurt, I would often journal about it. Mm -hmm. From what I can tell, I use this as a release for anger because I would write um, notes to people who had upset me in some way that I never intended to send. 
Oh, that's good. And that's a good strategy. I know. I think this might be even recommended as a therapeutic technique, <laughs> although I think perhaps it um, exacerbated my ruminating rather than <laughs> relieving it from what I, I was not a very good student or, or just an indifferent student. I I didn't try very hard. I wasn't particularly interested in school. I went to public school through sixth grade. I, I grew up in Bethesda, Maryland. And then I would have gone on to the public school, but I applied out to one school, Holton Arms, a girls' school, also in Bethesda. And I wound up going there from seventh through 12th grade. And it was a really good environment for me. And the all girls environment was good for me. I just, there was something that kind of seeped into my bloodstream. Mm -hmm. When you're in an environment where every president of every club and every captain of every team and every leader of student government is a girl, it, it just gets cooked in this yeah. idea that you can have those roles. And I remember right. when I got to Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt was at the time you and I were there, was a really strong regional school. It's become so much more competitive in the years since nationally, but there were girls there who were valedictorians or salutatorians of their public high schools in some of these small Southern cities. And I was so surprised that they tended not to speak in class. I couldn't even get my head around that. Mm. It's like, why wouldn't you speak up? It just never occurred to me that I couldn't or shouldn't. So that was wonderful for me, but it was hard. I always felt a little behind because I just was probably a little ADHD, to be honest. And it was when we were in college, though, that I got in touch again with my writing ability because I used to write the conclusions for my friends' papers mm -hmm. because people found it hard to write conclusions. So they'd <laughs> hand it over to me and I'd scan it and, and crank out a conclusion. Hilarious. And then I had this, this one time I was behind, I was way um, behind on the deadline for a paper for American social history, which is so interesting because I mm -hmm. actually love that class. And now I'm fascinated by American social history. Oh. And my novels have a lot of American social history. And I was in our sorority house right. and just writing at the last minute. And I was supposed to write about an American family. And the professor said, it can be your own or someone else's. And I knew a lot about my Washington family, the Humes. I just grew up steeped in the Hume family stories. I come from a family of storytellers. And I didn't know as much about my mother's family. She's from Hartford. That's where I was born. So I had written off to my grandfather and asked him some questions. And he sent me back answers, which were very thorough and very dry. And so I wove together this unbelievably fantastic, in the truest sense of the word, meaning fantasy, tale of my grandparents' marriage and how it was this meeting of this more puritanical old Hartford family and this very flashy, dashing, nouveau riche man. And I, I sprinkled in all these characters that I made up by looking over the course material. Mm -hmm. I had immigrant servants and all these people. And it was this tragic story and it culminated <laughs> in this divorce that it, it happened my grandparents did get divorced at the time people didn't anyway for the rest of his life my grandfather wanted to see a copy of this story oh, but why? I couldn't send well he, because he'd help you know sent me all this information oh. curious. And he heard I got a 93 on it <laughs> and he was he wanted to see it and you couldn't and send I, it of course not. Like I'd made him almost a villain in this. <laughs> I was like, this me. is not nearly interesting enough for me. So that's, I think, one reason why. Oh my God. Like actual history, it's far too limiting. So it's partly why I wanted to write fiction. So I did have, I wrote a lot in all of my jobs. I worked in a little bit in marketing and then a lot in politics and in that weird version of public relations that is only in DC. And then I did some write, ghost writing for magazine work under other people's names and then a little bit under my own byline. But I had a recurrent ambition to write mm -hmm. a novel. It took forever to write Haven Point. It was a side hustle and the process is always longer than people anticipate. But I was walking on the beach um, and this idea came to me for a story and the setting and over a series of long walks over a couple of weeks, the, the story fleshed out in my mind. Mm -hmm. And I thought, hmm, I think I'm actually ready to do this. But I made a decision that I think was really helpful to me and, and maybe instructive to your listeners, mm -hmm. which was that I had talked about writing a novel and not done it. And this time I thought, I'm going to do it and not talk about it. Key. It was helpful, I think. And it may be the case 
that it's hard to to know which came first, the chicken or the egg. It may be that I was truly ready to do it and therefore didn't feel the need to talk about it. There were a lot of very close friends that did not know I'd written a novel until I sold it and announced that I'd sold it. I think the key to success is when you have a dream and a goal, doing it without talking about it is really motivating. And I also think that just the fact that you said the idea came to you walking, I mean, walking is very meditative, especially alone. And uh, people don't do that enough. And I think that is probably how the idea came to you. And there's no doubt. There's some science behind this, but I think there's also as much as people with artificial intelligence and all this Mm -hmm. research are trying to break down what is creativity. I think at the heart of it is something that is really metaphysical. It's, I think it's going to be hard to pin that down. There is though some brain science about the default mode network that the process of, I hate the word ideating because I I think it's kind of pretentious, but I've never been able (laughs) to come up with a better word because it's not just creating and it's not just conceptualizing. It's Mm -hmm. coming up with ideas that form in my case, a story, but it could be a business plan. People say they get their best ideas in the shower. Oh, yeah. And that's because your conscious brain, it's activated, but you're doing something you can do kind of mechanically. So driving a car, usually for me, not in traffic, because that requires more concentration, but open road driving or taking a walk, or maybe cleaning your house that often an idea would come. I would say walking, I used to say it would rattle things off the shelves, memories, making these random associations. And it got to the point where it was so clear that that was helpful that when I had a sticky plot issue or something that as a character developed was no longer making sense but the story had been woven together so much already i'm like well wait this person has to do this thing but i've got to figure out why Mm -hmm. i would go for a drive or take a long walk inevitably the answer would come and that creative process when i worked with kids on college essays i often told them take a walk Mm -hmm. when you're trying to think about something or you're trying to flesh out a concept take a walk take a drive because Mm -hmm. we all think of work as being that thing that you do when you're sitting at your laptop at your desk Mm -hmm. but uh, the default mode network of your brain when it's occupied with a rote task or maybe that's not the part that is occupied can you tell i'm not a scientist not a stem scholar definitely (laughs) a humanities student Um, and the bit about ideas going back to Um, not talking about something. There's a little science behind that too. I I had this conversation with my father really early on in the process. I told him I was starting this idea because on the vacation where I'd taken that first walk and the series of long walks, I was with him and my kids in Maine. And I had mentioned something about it. So we had lunch and I told him I'm really pursuing this, but I'm not talking about it. And he said, I think that's a really good idea. And he told me that his father, my grandfather used to say, When you're involved in a creative endeavor, don't talk about it because you get the benefit of doing it without doing it. Mm -hmm. So when you're at a cocktail party and you're talking about this business you're going to launch or this book you're going to write, people's reaction satisfies you. Your brain feels like you've already done it. Right. And your ego is satisfied. And I think not talking about it, at least in my case, it kept my ego out of it. Right. I didn't. You're still motivated. Yeah, I was still motivated and I was also treating it almost like I do other creative things. I do more like hobbies. Mm-hmm. And of course, I wanted to sell it, as my husband will tell you, I don't need another hobby. But I really <laughs> tried to keep, <laughs> I mean, really don't. I really try <laughs> to keep the main thing, the main thing. And mm-hmm. I didn't really know how to write a novel. I had to learn you figured as I it was out. going. Well, that's what I, I love about your story, too, is that you talk about not being a student and yet... A lot of people might think, oh, I have to have straight A's in English to write a book. But you clearly are, are very intelligent. Sometimes people learn differently or maybe you weren't motivated in that particular class. But don't let grades or your English class be the negative factor that dissuades you. If you are passionate about an idea, you can write anything. 
I think in general too, these, the things that we love to do when we're little, and I'm finding this with so many of my friends now Mm -hmm. who might have really dialed back a career or even stopped working while their kids were young Mm -hmm. and are now re either re-entering the workforce or kids have grown and flown and they're getting back in touch with what they like to do, both vocation and avocation. And so many of them are rediscovering lost creative passions. And when you let go of the need, we have this desire in our society to professionalize everything. Mm -hmm. I I do some painting and honestly, everything I do is incredibly derivative. (laughs) I can draw and I can paint, but I I copy things. I don't (laughs) do a lot that's very original. And people say, you could sell this. Like, I don't need to sell it. I, I just do it just to do it because right. I like doing it. It can be very mindful in mm-hmm. that way, especially if you've let go of outcomes. It's fun to master something, even if there's no product at the end or anything you're trying to show the world. Right. It's so satisfying to learn and to, and I think these old loves of ours from childhood, when we are so much freer in a way from these expectations. And Regarding being a student and being a good student, Mm -hmm. when I worked with kids on college essays, I I would tell them it's great. If you're a good student, it's great to be good at school and to love school. But that's just one thing. Mm -hmm. And we are so caught up, especially in affluent communities with the college race and, oh, boy, do we know how to suck the joy out of learning. My goodness. And that's great. But my father wasn't a very good student. My grandfather, who did lots of neat things, wasn't a very good student. I don't come from, like, great student stock. I mentioned that your father is Britt Hume, who is an amazing journalist and brilliant, articulate, and that having him as a role model, I'm sure, has helped in the way. It's funny. And it was helpful because... I didn't have a lot of pressure around grades because I think that my father's example showed that you can be, there's a lot of very successful adults in the world who didn't get terrific grades. It might've been the material and how it was taught and it wasn't that of interest to them. Right. That's fine. And that was the same for me. And so I wasn't particularly discouraged by grades, but I think a lot of people are because they get so caught up in this rat race Mm -hmm. that we're in. And I love to read. I just didn't always love to read what was assigned. Right. And as my earlier anecdote about, (laughs) I know, and yet you are so good at forming questions and for teasing out what people have to say. And you're so incredibly curious. It's just sometimes that's not applied to school. I think if you have the blessing of being able to afford to go to college, that it's good to go and you need the diploma And I think people graduate and find that what they were learning is not necessarily relevant to what they're going to be doing in their lives. I also like how you said that you were painting because that is such a great form of expression and how you were saying people thought you should sell it. I think a lot of young people, if they're not good at something immediately, they're like, oh, I shouldn't do that and move on to something else instead of just doing it for the sheer joy of doing it. I remember I listened to Ed Sheeran when he was 13 and some of the songs he wrote. And if you had told me he was going to be a famous songwriter, I would have laughed you out of the room. It was comical, and I just loved the fact that he didn't give up like a lot of kids would have at that age. So I often send his first song <laughs> to people that are like, oh, maybe I'm not a songwriter. I'm like, no, listen to Ed Sheeran. <laughs> well, and I think obviously there are talents and interests and what we end up doing and doing well is probably going to be fairly aligned with our talents and our interests. Right. But the process of writing Haven Point, yes, I had skills. And because I read so much, I had absorbed a lot of the conventions of novels. So Mm -hmm. as I wrote, I was fairly good at knowing when something wasn't working. This is often around these vaporous ideas of pacing and Mm -hmm. just how a story structure or how the novel is structured, narrative structure, things like that. I would know when something was not working, but I wouldn't always know immediately how to fix it, to diagnose it or, or prescribe the solution. And I just kept trying. And St. Ignatius said, give without counting the cost, talking about charity. And I think the corollary 
in creative endeavors is give without counting the time. And I think because I wasn't talking about this, there weren't people saying, how's that novel going? Mm -hmm. Or when's your novel going to be published? Or all those kinds of questions. Took the pressure off Mm -hmm. and I would just keep at it. And I'm not that tenacious about everything. (laughs) I mean, I am really not commonly considered a tenacious person. I (laughs) give things up all the time. I try things and abandon them. But I um, love that. I love that. And you don't have to be because why label yourself as one thing or or another for whatever reason. And I think because I was ready to do Mm -hmm. this, I just was tenacious about it. And I let go of how long it was taking, Mm -hmm. which was a really good thing because it took forever. (laughs) And I told my daughters before I even had a literary agent, which is really the key and one of the key important steps. If you're going to publish a novel in a sort of traditional publishing house, I told my daughters because I thought it was really important for them to know that I had already gotten the most important benefit out of this project, that it had changed me in a really fundamental way because I found myself trying all kinds of other things. And letting go of the time it took to learn them. And painting is an example. I did some of it before I had started working on Haven Point. But I got back to it. And I would think I'm painting an ocean and there's uh, some sea spray. And how do you paint sea spray? Pull up a painting on my iPad and expand it. And look at the tiny little brush strokes Mm -hmm. that an artist I admire uses. And like, oh, I see. That's how you paint sea spray. By the way, if I were a professional artist, this is not a very inspired way to go about it. This is me as a hobbyist, just trying to achieve some effect that I was interested in achieving. Or I'm not a great cook, but I thought, "Mm, I love French macarons. They're so pretty. I'm going to bake French macarons, which if any of your listeners know, they're very hard. It's hard to make them nice and puffy. And so I tried, failed, tried, failed, watched another YouTube video, tried again, read another little blog post try it again try it again why not i like them they're pretty i love the outcome Um, yeah (laughs) very creative they taste good haven point spans 70 years it's two interwoven narratives it goes back and forth in time Mm -hmm. and to make a fluid reader experience with a story like that is hard and i think just doing this helped me realize that some things are just worth working at and very few people can do them immediately. Right. Ed Sheeran, of course, has talent. He has natural talent. Oh, beyond. And, at the, and beyond. But it, I think it is such a great um, story that he was horrible at it at first. And put it I out there. And that he put it out there. That's so generous. Yeah. I love that he did that. I know. Because a lot of people like to keep up the mystique. Right. And right. This was, I was born this way. <laughs> exactly. Straight from the womb, I was a songwriter. <laughs> I could write a multi-generational family saga. No, very few people can do that. A lot of it is just hard work mm-hmm. and deconstructing and going back to the idea of professionalizing everything. Right. Letting go of outcomes. Letting go I of think, outcome, I think, is key. Letting go of outcomes is key. And keeping your ego out of it. I wanted to write a novel I wanted to go through the process of learning how to do it as I did it and Mm. rather than being known as a novelist which is a very different thing imagining glamorous book parties ha 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 (laughs) that whole thing by the way launching a novel is not nearly as glamorous as people think when I sold it people were like that's so thrilling and the word that kept coming to me was gratifying Mm -hmm. That it was such a gratifying outcome Mm -hmm. that something I'd worked so hard on that it had sold and that I had a a great editor at a wonderful publishing house that Mm -hmm. was going to go out into the world. And so, but it was a long time getting there. And I think the process was even more important to me personally than the outcome. Well, Haven Point is about female friendships. And Marin has two best friends, Dorothy and Georgie, that really serve two different purposes. Can you talk to us about friendships and how to choose a friend and what their different purposes were? That's such an important question. Everybody has had experiences, especially in middle school, when you're consumed with status. Almost everybody is Mm -hmm. to some level. And you might choose a friend because 
or she is popular. But that friend, you don't feel safe really necessarily. All the talking behind each other's backs and those little small betrayals that can really chip away at your self-confidence. I think growing in middle and high school and even through college, I think is a lot about choosing the kinds of friends where you can be safe. At the same time, I think I've noticed, especially as an adult, that I have lots of different kinds of friends Mm -hmm. and they serve different purposes. And Marin is just very briefly her her friend Dorothy is someone she meets when during World War II when she's a cadet nurse mm-hmm. at Walter Reed Army Hospital in Washington, D.C. That's also where she meets Oliver Demarest, who becomes her husband, who's from a very different background. And Marin is from a farm town in Minnesota. She doesn't intend to go back. She doesn't hate it. She's not bitter about it. She just doesn't think that's for her. And Dorothy, her friend at Walter Reed, who's a fellow cadet nurse, these were young nurses who were fast-tracked through high school on the government tab to fill in on the home front because we have a shortage of home front nurses during the war because so many were overseas. And Dorothy is from a very prominent New York family and is very glamorous, but Dorothy loves Marin and she loves her for all the right reasons because they share an enthusiasm for what they're doing, a desire to contribute, a sense of fun. They just have a very natural friendship despite their disparate backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And that's not the case with all the other women at Walter Reed, some of whom look down on Marin because she's not from this exalted upbringing. And Dorothy's, she's very fun and she's more impulsive. There's a scene when Marin feels she's been betrayed by her husband and Dorothy says, well, let's just drive to New York and go to this hotel and find out if this is true. Marin's friend Georgie, who she knows on Haven Point, this summer community where the Demarests, the family she's married into, has spent their summers for 100 years and with which she has a very fraught relationship for a long time. She does eventually make her peace with the place. Georgie is from a very old Haven Point family, but also a very old Maine family. They're not super wealthy. They have farmed in Maine for many, many years. They have a garden out one side of their house and fishing poles on the other side of the house. Just typical Maine coast family, Mm -hmm. much more salt of the earth. And Georgie is there. That is the main characteristic of that friendship is her thereness. Marin trusts her and Georgie obviously loves her, but she's not impulsive. You can't imagine her dashing off to New York to march through the lobby of a hotel and try to discover what's going on with a husband. That's really more Dorothy's role. So they do play different roles in Marin's life. Georgie Mm -hmm. is more present in some ways, just physically they're in the same place. And Dorothy is someone who brings out Marin's sense of adventure, but they both improve her confidence and she trusts them both. Mm-hmm. and has good reason to. She knows neither will betray her. I think that's what's so important in choosing a friend is letting go as much as possible with the idea of status. Um, yeah. I talked to my daughter so much about that. Just, we were very open kimono. I have this terrible blessing and curse of remembering my own adolescence. <laughs> and it's hard to let go of being popular. Right. And one thing young girls say to me today, which is interesting, is that a lot of times their group that they're in will talk badly about other people or another, a girl, and they will just assume that they shouldn't be friends with her and won't make the effort because the group doesn't like this particular girl. And then once they say, I'm not going to let anyone influence me and I'm not going to care what people think and I'm just going to do my own thing, they befriend the girl and see that she's nothing like the group had projected. So I think that story is also a common one today, unfortunately. Generally, throughout the years of high school, if someone has sort of a typical developmental arc, socially speaking, you do tend to see those barriers um, break down between groups of friends. And Senior year, you watch as a class comes together. You're facing the end of your senior year, and and groups tend to become more porous. Mm -hmm. It's easier to leave a a group or to slip out and have friendships outside the group, and it's easier for someone to come in. It's porous in both directions. And porousness of a group is 
something I think it's important for young people mm-hmm. to look for. And I think you probably noticed as well as I did in college that while most people were excited to leave high school behind and to have lots of different kinds of friends and to meet people, you might still have a core group of people you socialize with, but you have more of a sense of social adventurousness. Mm-hmm. But there were people who practically waited until we had sorority rush in January. So mm-hmm. we'd been there our second semester. It was almost like they were waiting to join a sorority before they chose their group of friends. Yeah. And then they had a, their group within their sorority, which is very odd at a school like Vanderbilt where people don't live in the sorority houses. It's non-residential. Yeah. Only, only officers do. Yeah. And they stuck with that same group. It was almost like they never let go of that need to have a non-porous group right. that they were a part of. That's to, so insightful. To, you always see what's really happening. <laughs> well, and I didn't always, sometimes it was in retrospect. Yeah. Social media is such a scourge for the most part, but I do think it's helpful in some ways for adults to reconnect with mm-hmm. old friends. I see now so much more people I didn't know well in high school, even though I felt like I had a cast a wider net as the years went on. I see how much value they have, and I regret not knowing them better back right. then. It's hard to balance the desire for status and that tribal tendency that we all have, that tribal instinct to be a part of a group that's safe, that keeps you safe. Mm-hmm. It's almost like those old primitive need for safety in numbers that used to be to stave off saber-toothed tigers or whatever, (laughs) stave off feelings of insecurity or mean girls or safety in numbers. It's really a misapplication, but our brains have not changed that much over the centuries, I'm afraid to say. And so status consciousness is getting worse with social media too, I'm afraid. In your second novel, you talked about how it grapples with feminism. So I thought it'd be helpful to talk about issues of feminism or our own definitions of it and the challenges we've faced. What can you tell me about feminism that you've seen? Well, it's been interesting because this sort of emerged as I started writing this novel, which is set in the same summer community in 1895. Mm-hmm. And there are three interwoven narratives. One is a Southern woman who comes from a very impoverished post-Civil War family, but very blue-blooded. And her father dies from suicide when she's 19 years old, and she has eight younger siblings and has to figure out within the constraints of um, her blue blood, which dictated that she couldn't go work in a store or take that kind of job, how to how to bring money in to help her family. Mm-hmm. The second is a woman from a more elite family in Boston who has, under a pseudonym, written a um, satirical novel about Boston's Watch and Ward Society, which was this very censorious group that was extremely powerful in Boston in the late 19th century. They were cracking down on illicit literature, including, for example, some Give of me his a break. Work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and also on gambling and prostitution. It was a time of real social regression for women in a lot of ways, elite women. The third woman is a second generation Irish immigrant who is working class. And as I started writing and thinking about the challenges each of them faced, I realized these women who all end up together on Haven Point for various reasons end up having a lot of conversations and experiences together. And I thought, gosh, they're talking about a lot of the same things we talk about Mm -hmm. today. And I always consider myself a feminist. As I said earlier, a product of girls' school education. But I ended up through the years feeling a little disconnected from feminism as it's discussed as a political issue. And I think a, a lot of women struggle with this versus women's empowerment. How do we empower ourselves and what is empowering? And the solutions to the challenges we face are sometimes in politics and policy, but often they're not. Often they're about personal choices and navigating our relationships with a spouse or within our families, the kinds of negotiations and also what we want. By the way, I should say, it's a luxury often to think about these things. For example, I know you struggled too with balancing work and family at some point. Right. And you wound up, I think, leaving your job, which was a full-time, really hardcore. You had really reached a very high level in your career. And you wound up deciding that 
you couldn't balance that with what you wanted as a mother. Right. I tried to do four days a week and then one day from home. And I just remember like poopy diapers being everywhere, <laughs> total chaos, running around. You just couldn't get anything done. Yes. And I had the same. I got married older than you did. I got married at 32. I had my first child at 33, my second at 35, which is um not unusual in Boston. And I remember I asked before my first older daughter was born, if I could come back to my job three days a week. And it was a very calculated sacrifice. It was a financial one. I did get a raise before they cut my pay. They cut my pay commensurate with my new hours. But it also bled a little bit. Mm -hmm. I had occasionally was contacted on my days off. And oh, I remember yeah. I had some colleagues who would say, that's not fair. That's not right. That's mm -hmm. not equitable. But and I remember thinking, should I gauge this by, should I gauge it by how satisfied I am with my mm -hmm. circumstances? And it really worked for me. And of course, people were going to contact me occasionally on my days off. There were questions that needed to be answered. And I was still in the bonus pool at my firm. It was a great situation for me. And this is the, one of the first examples where I felt really alienated in some ways by the national conversation. There's a lot of talk, for example, about 77 cents on the dollar. Women make, on average, 77 cents on the dollar um, compared to men. And if you hear that statistic, I think the first thing that comes into people's minds is, oh, for the same job. And that's not what that statistic represents. That statistic represents all women working five days a week and all men working five days. As it happens, I wouldn't have been included in my three-day-a-week job in those statistics, but I might just as easily because I personally wanted to be home more often. And I, by the way, I don't think you have to do this. It was what I really wanted. I might've chosen a job where I could leave right at five instead of staying until eight o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. I might've dialed things back. And I, I think it's probably the case that women overall for the same job, looking across all industries, make less money than men. Mm -hmm. But we can't start that conversation with 77 cents on the dollar because that's just not an honest way to begin. And so I thought, well, that's not helpful to me. What do I want my daughters to know? What is the best way for them to choose a job and to make sure that they are fairly compensated for their efforts mm -hmm. and that they aren't being dis discriminated against? Is it choosing a company with the right culture? Is it learning negotiation skills? There's lots of tendencies that women might have that we want to help them with. I know you you talk about a lot of these issues mm -hmm. on your podcast and in your books and in yoga, right. making sure that women feel empowered. But I just found that national politics tends to be this kind of lowest common denominator. Mm -hmm. And it's also really unsatisfying well, way to solve problems. There's always the question of when do we fight? And when do we fight about something in politics? Like the world needs its activists. It needs angry activists. If you think of the things that wouldn't have happened if we hadn't had them, women wouldn't be voting, never mind working or negotiating better salaries. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't have had civil rights. There are so many things that activists have achieved. And often we've needed their energy, we've needed their anger, we've needed their insistence and their single-mindedness, their tenacity. But being an act and a very single-minded one is not always a happy existence. Mm -hmm. And I'm sort of inclined towards contentment. And it's just not my choice. I'm grateful to people who have paved the way for me to have the choices I have. I have told young women this, you can vote with your feet. You don't yeah. have to stay inside an organization and battle it out to try to weed out the problems. How about leaving? Right. How about finding another job? We always think, I've got to change this. Well, I'll tell you, if you're an organization that isn't treating a particular category of employee well, and they start voting with their feet, well, that's how they'll change or not. Same with relationships. If you're not happy, how long do you keep battling? How long do you keep trying to change something from within? I, I think sometimes it's better just to move on to a better place. I mean, mm -hmm. hanging on and stewing in anger when you're being mistreated. Is right. People stay in relationships solution. and jobs way too long. They often do. Or 
they might raise their fist and try to change it. We really societally, I think, encourage that almost. Like, mm-hmm. if you've got a grievance, then fight, fight, fight. And I think there's a, a time and a place for that kind of action and activism. But I think most of us are just trying to live our lives and mm-hmm. navigate our relationships and our workplaces. How do we do that? People say that the political is personal or the personal is political, but sometimes the personal is just personal. There's a bit of grievance seeking these days that's being kind of valorized in our culture mm-hmm. that I don't think is always useful. I just don't think it's always useful because you don't always have agency. You can change jobs, presuming you have the confidence and the discernment, mm-hmm. but you don't always have the, the agency to change the whole world or even your company. Agency is empowering having agency Mm -hmm. feels empowering. And I would rather focus on the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to change the things I can, to accept the things I can't and the wisdom to know the difference. And I think a more serene life is is one where you change what you can. And that often means leaving something behind. But it's fear, I think, a lot of times that keeps people from doing that. Fear, um, if you've been beaten down in a job or or dispirited by a relationship. Sometimes you worry there isn't something better around the corner. But man, taking that first step and being willing to leave what feels safe, even if it doesn't feel good, is very empowering. And often that first step leads leads people in a better direction. Just uh, taking and that I just lead. also think that when people realize like what's missing today is love, and, I, and that may sound completely generic, but Anything that is not love feels like abuse. And when we can come from a place when someone has a grievance and put ourselves in their situation, well, you must be feeling this way because let me try to see it from your viewpoint. I think then people respond to each other very differently. But right now, I feel like everyone wants to be right and don't want to see other people's perspectives. Yes, I see that a lot. I've noticed this with COVID, but just watching the COVID discourse on Twitter, which is really something I should not do because talk about a waste of time. But my feeling about an intervention, like a public health intervention is, it needs to be effective. And and that's in our world as it is now with the people who live in it. So you have all these people complaining, if everyone would just X, then, you know, then Y intervention would work. It's like, well, no, in public health, it's supposed to be, okay, what's the reality of what people are willing to do? If it emerges that they're not willing to do it, then being right on Twitter doesn't help. You have to be effective in the real world. And instead, we have this odd situation where we turn this into kind of a morality play where people are virtue signaling. But it's also so silly. By the way, everyone being angry at each other is not good for public health. No. (laughs) It's really not. I know. Especially coming from me in the wellness world, everything we're doing promoting fear and anxiety is just escalating. And we need to totally bring it down. It's really unfortunate that this whole thing got so politicized really early on because it prevented us from having a good public health response. Okay, people aren't willing to do this. How do we know? Because they're not doing it. Right. So what do we do? What's the alternative? Back to the drawing board. And a real public health person takes responsibility for the fact that something is not working either because Mm -hmm. noncompliance, by the way, a lot of people who don't comply, it's not political. It's socioeconomic. And that's the thing that's been really ignored is that. What do you mean? I mean, that COVID cases have been highest in the poorest areas where people don't have a choice. So people pat themselves on the back for ordering DoorDash. Meanwhile, there are people working in that kitchen at a restaurant. Yeah. (laughs) And then going home Mm -hmm. to their multi-generational households where there's worse ventilation. And then you have elite people looking out their windows saying, oh, that person who's walking their labradoodle is not wearing a mask. (laughs) And they've decided (laughs) that's why COVID is spreading. On the other hand, you have communities where inner city kids have been kept out of school because elites have decided to stay shut down and those kids are going to suffer long-term consequences. And that's another aspect of public health that's supposed to balance costs and benefits. Mm-hmm. And we haven't had that because doing so 
was considered morally reprehensible. We don't count the cost. Of course you count the cost. Well, thank you so much, Virginia, for joining us today because it's been so insightful and I really hope that our readers have gotten a lot out of it and run out to buy your book, Haven Point. So can you tell them how they can get in touch with you? Sure. Well, you can go to Haven Point and most independent bookstores. It's also on Amazon. There's an audiobook version so people like to listen, which I think people who listen to podcasts might also like audiobooks. I do have a website, virginiahume.com, which I update almost never, but I have great <laughs> high aspirations for it. But there is um, <laughs> all the basic information with links to Instagram and my other social media accounts. Well, thank you so much, Virginia. You're such an amazing person, and I really appreciate your time. Well, I love being on this show. You're performing such a wonderful service for your listeners, Mary Kay. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Thanks. Please join me for a short meditation. Get in a comfortable place. You can either be laying flat or sitting in a chair. Meditation is really important because the people around you influence your body, rewire your brain. They can even influence your budget. And your brain changes its own wiring from new experiences. And so when we have a really relaxed mind and have cleared out all the negative energy, We attract really great people and opportunities. So begin by closing your eyes and taking a few relaxing breaths. Breathe out the stress, tension, tightness, and breathe in the beautiful, wondrous energy all around you. You can imagine that you hear birds singing, ocean waves, whatever it is that makes you feel calm and complete. Imagine that you can actually breathe out these stresses because you can and breathe in the beautiful energy. Relax completely the muscles in your face and your jaw, letting go of all tightness. Let your face completely relax. Now relax the muscles of your neck, your throat, back of the neck, letting go of all tightness and tension. And just feel your face and your neck slowly relax, feeling soft. And feel that beautiful serenity all around you. Allow my voice to help you go deeper and deeper with each relaxed breath. And as you do this, slowly relax your shoulders. Allow the muscles of the back, the upper back, the lower back to relax. And now your arms, your arms feel loose and heavy. Down to your fingers, let your palms relax. And now the rib cage rises and falls with the breath, slowly releasing all tension, tightness, and worry. Completely relax the muscles of your legs, so soft and loose. Completely relaxing all the way down to your feet. Let the soles of your feet, your heels, toes relax. And now imagine that your entire body is just melting into your seat or the floor, wherever you're relaxing. And now listen to the birds. The best thing for your nervous system is to meditate, to take this time to unplug and relax. Slowly imagine that there's this bright, brilliant white light 
above the crown of your head. And it can be as large as the sun. It's just sparkling and glittering. And this white light is filled with healing energy. It's filled with kindness and laughter and the ability to be happy for others. It's filled with pure joy and consciousness. Now allow the sparkling white light to come down into the crown of your head. And as the light travels through your body, it heals all illness and disease, takes away any pain, healing the heart. Allow your heart to expand now. Your heart is filling with love, and that love is expanding, traveling throughout the body. And now just remind yourself how spectacular you are, how well-loved you are. You are worthy of love. And believe that you have infinite potential. You are capable of anything. Take a deep breath in, inhaling, exhale, release. The longer you're able to sit still, the better it is for your nervous system. It tells the nervous system we are safe, relaxed. I'm going to treat you well. Now the light's traveling down your limbs, down your trunk, and down the legs, and it fills the entire body with this healing white light. And the white light forms this protective energy around you, glittering, sparkling. And that protective energy protects you from any negative people, experiences. It just lets things bounce off of you. You're able to let go of all the little things. Nothing bothers you anymore. When you get rid of that fight-or-flight reaction, you become calm and more present. This makes it easier to solve problems, make decisions, and love. Feel the joy that is seeping into your being just by letting go. Sometimes the thoughts will come in, annoying thoughts, distracting thoughts, but just let them release. That's the body's way of releasing stress. Don't judge, just let them go. You are an agent of change. You can change the way you think so that you react calmly, positively, mindfully. Take a deep breath in, inhaling one last time all that positive energy, kindness, laughter, the ability to be happy for others. Now exhale, deep exhale, letting go of any worry, tension, envy, anger, sadness. Let it leave the body now. Be sure to subscribe to Mary Kay's Positivity Podcast, and I hope you'll join us again soon. Namaste.